Greetings to all my fellow listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, uh, but then again, it was just yesterday that I was on air. But nonetheless, it's great to be back on as we speak. Well, yes, yesterday we talked about Delaware, and now we are on to colony number nine. And remember, people, 1776, there are only 13 colonies. So which colony is number nine that we're going to be talking about? Maryland. Now, um, if any of you are from Maryland, uh, this should be a good um, 101 reminder of where um, Maryland uh, or what Maryland is surrounded by, not just water, but uh, state-wise. Well, Maryland borders Virginia, West Virginia, and D.C., all to the south and west. Think about it. West Virginia is just west of Maryland. D.C. and Virginia are to the south. To the north lies Pennsylvania, and to the east is Delaware, along with that body of water we call the Atlantic Ocean. So, how does Maryland get its name? Well, I didn't know this, but it is worth sharing. Maryland is named after the English Queen Henrietta Maria, known in England as Queen Mary, the wife of King Charles I. Given that Maryland is um, surrounded by water, most notably the Chesapeake Bay, and other um, unique bodies of water like the Patuxent River, the Patapsco Bay, just some of a handful of uh, estuaries that, um, or should I say tributaries, that um, flow in, in and out of the uh, Chesapeake Bay. Maryland, um, one name that Maryland gets referred to in terms of state name is the Maryland 400. Why is that so? Well, I learned that the Maryland 400 has to do with uh, the 1st Maryland Regimental Unit, who played a very important role during the New York campaign of 1776 that was not one of our greatest um, moments of, um, of fame, I should say, uh, during the early stages of the American Revolution, or should I say of the war. But if there, was a sp- if there was a bright spot, it would be none other than that 1st Maryland Regiment. How so? Well, they really were the only um, unit that held its ground and yet was willing to take up a fight with the, with the um, abundance of uh, British forces present. And we have to remember, by August 1776, one month after Congress declares its separation from England, uh, King George III is um, launching an all-out assault on the colonies in terms of warfare. He is bringing hundreds of ships and soldiers, or should I say troops, into uh, New York Harbor to really just show us for a fact that who is in charge, being none other than the British. But the 1st Maryland Regiment it seems to be no stranger to warfare. However, they did um, endure heavy casualties, which was not a good thing, 
but they were able to muster up enough courage to charge a to, to charge or should I say go up against a great superior British force. What was the one thing that this first Maryland regiment did? The regiment allowed General George Washington to properly evacuate the majority of his troops into Manhattan. In other words, um, the story has it that uh, it was a what you call foggy night. Washington knew that um, there really wasn't much hope, and the only way to live to see another day for fighting was to evacuate their current um, premise station. But it's not like everybody can just get in a boat and just go about their own little rosy way. There has to be some means of distraction. There has to be something um, in disguise to prove that, hey, while anything can change in a matter of minutes, you've got to keep the opposition off track. Well, it turns out that uh, Washington decided it would be best to leave um, campfires in play. After all, a campfire at night is the best, really, it is like its own form of electricity for its time, but it's also a way to deter the opposition from perhaps launching a surprise attack. What did some of the uh, members of the 1st Maryland Regiment do, along with, say, others that were currently a part of George Washington's group? They took barrels, I should say, um, barrels or, or keg barrels that you would have probably put, say, flour in or other, um, what do you call it, necessities that um, would have been essential for um, an army or a unit. They basically took, knocked the uh, kegs down and rolled, and soldiers rolled them back and forth. By doing this, it created noise and distraction, and perhaps it would have warded off any potential, um, what do you call it, uh, people of uh, suspicion who would want to um, give um, valuable intelligence, not just to the British, but perhaps um, to inflict um, harm uh, to the uh, Continental Army. So while all of this was going on, Washington was able to get the majority of his troops on boat to sail across um, the water, the Hudson River rather, to Manhattan. And what do you know, by next day, being early morning, the British did march onto what was um, previous uh, territory by uh, the Continental Army, only to find campfires still going on, but the fires themselves in what's called smoldering. In other words, the fires had pretty much been put out, but remnants of the fires were still there. So even in this, in this bleak moment of hope, Washington had found a way to outmaneuver uh, the British uh, troops, but thanks in large part to this 1st Maryland Regimental Unit. They, therefore, they had a reputation of being among the best in the Continental Army at this point in time in 1776. So thank you, uh, Maryland 400, for saving uh, George Washington's army and for keeping the cause alive, the cause of independence alive, I should say. Well, how many counties are there in Maryland? I'll give you a hint. It's less than 30, but the number is between 20 and 25. The answer is 23. Well, it turns out that 16 out of, out of the 23 counties in Maryland, including the city of Baltimore, 
border waters of Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Well, look at the Maryland Eastern Shore. Look at Annapolis, Baltimore. Um, I mean, if you look at Maryland very carefully, then yes, it is safe to say that the majority of its counties, including Baltimore, in fact do border waters of the Chesapeake Bay. Baltimore, especially with the Patuxent River and the Patapsco uh, River, um, are two uh, big water, bodies of water that uh, flow into the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Now, prior to European exploration in the 16th century, uh, Maryland is, is inhabited by an array of Indian tribes. But what's essential about the year 1632? This is the year that Maryland was founded, none other by a Mr. George Calvert. And why is George Calvert, or should I say his family, so um, essential to Maryland's um, establishment? Well, okay, if you look at uh, where the New World stands between 1607 and 1632, the colonies that have already been established, like Virginia... Massachusetts, New Hampshire, uh, just to name a few, those colonies are established by um, Protestant leaders. Up until 1632, no colony is established on the grounds of uh, what we might refer to as Catholic leadership or on the grounds of Catholic faith. George Calvert was a Catholic convert who sought to provide a religious haven for Catholics persecuted in England. Well, if any of you all know your history, or should or at least remember, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there a Catholic um, a queen who went above and beyond to try to restore Catholicism to England? Well, her name was Queen Mary. And it turned out that she was uh, Queen Elizabeth I's half-sister. turns out they both had the same father, none other than Henry VIII. Well, um, it turns out that uh, George Calvert had better luck coming to the New World uh, for religious, to provide a religious haven in regards to those who wanted to practice the Catholic faith. Uh, here, Catholics were persecuting for a number of years people who did not adhere to the Catholic Church, most notably in Spain and Italy and any other European nation stronghold where the Catholic Church or Catholicism itself was very prevalent. Even in France, I should say, France was, was very Catholic. However, there was one group of, uh, or should I say, one religious uh, group sect that was persecuted vigorously in France for not being Catholic, were the French Huguenots. Well, it just so turns out that there is a road um, not far or less than five minutes from where my wife and I live that you get onto, and it's Huguenot Road, named none other than the, after the French Huguenots. So, uh, Maryland really becomes the first colony in the New World to be established um, for those wanting to practice their Catholic faith. Now, George Calvert envisioned a colony where people of different religious sects would coexist with one another. Yes, he, his mission was to um, provide religious haven for Catholics, but 
he also felt that, okay, if you were a Protestant and still suffered from religious uh, discrimination or from potential religious persecution, you could come to Maryland and worship freely and coexist with um, with what we would say non-Anglican people. In other words, people who did not affiliate themselves directly with the Church of England. Well, what what is important about the year 1649? This is about 17 years after Maryland is uh, first established. Well, the colony of Maryland passes what's called the Toleration Act, or an act concerning religion. It ensures religious tolerance for Trinitarian Christians. Now, here's something very interesting. Well, before I get to this part, the law itself would require open religious tolerance in the New World. There is another colony who's very similar to Maryland, and it's Rhode Island, which was founded 13 years earlier in 1636 by Roger Williams, who originally lived in Massachusetts but was expelled from Massachusetts because of um, irreconcilable uh, differences over uh, religious, um, what do you call it, religious ideology. Maryland and Rhode Island are the first two colonies that were established as religious haven sanctuaries for sects, or we call religious sects, which didn't conform to Anglican Church or Church of, Eng- Church of England doctrines. Well, think about it. If you are a staunch member of the Anglican Church, then you are going to adhere to the Anglican Church's teachings and, um, and principles or, or customs of life. If you don't adhere to the Anglican Church, well, then yes, you could run the risk of being persecuted or being uh, punished to where you would have been, say, punished in public. But it is safe to say that many in the, um, those who were not um, we call in uh, opposition to the Anglican Church felt that the church's teachings had too much, uh, what do you call it, rigidity. In other words, it was too rigid and it was too doctrinal. So, having religious toleration um, allows not only for diversity, but also a more, what do you call it, open expression about your religion and faith. Now, is it safe to say that even during Maryland's early years in existence that Catholics are in uh, peace and harmony? It turns out that uh, that Catholics were still in the minority even when the passage of the Maryland um, law went into effect being this uh, act known as the um, Maryland Toleration Act or Act Concerning Religion. It turns out that out of all 13 colonies, Maryland obviously was the most heavily Catholic. But the total Catholic population in Maryland or just in general, was less than 10%. It is still safe to say that uh, the vast majority of, um, of European people coming into the New World are of uh, Protestant faith. Whether they are strong adherers to the Anglican Church or not, um, 90% or more are of uh, Protestant denomination. Well, what is Maryland's economy... Uh, heavily based on uh, 
Well, I'll just tell you here real quick, not to get off track, but I think it is something that should be pointed out. Maryland's economy is based primarily around tobacco. Well, if you take Southern Maryland, or should I say Southern and Central Maryland, it's referred to as the Rolling Hills region. In other words, it might be seen like the equivalent of a Piedmont um, geographical area, kind of like in Virginia, how the Piedmont country is referred to as Rolling Hills. So yes, tobacco was a huge um, lucrative cash crop in Maryland like it would become in Virginia. Now, even though Maryland was established in 1632, it's not until two years later in 1634 that the first settlers arrive in Maryland under the leadership of, C of Cecilius Calvert, who was the son of George Calvert. And then another son named, Len named um, Leonard Calvert became the first provincial governor. The first permanent settlement in Maryland was none other than St. Mary's City, which is now referred to as St. Mary's County. St. Mary's City was the capital of Maryland until 1695, and it was that way for just over 60 years. Now, for years, um, Maryland and Pennsylvania have been uh, placed under the leadership of one governor, just like Pennsylvania and Delaware had at one time. But Maryland and Pennsylvania had a lot of issues, and issues in terms of border and boundary line, and it often led to conflicts. But by 1760, and in 1760, we're still uh, battling what's called the French and Indian War, or as the Europeans like to call it, the Seven Years' War, Maryland and Pennsylvania finally came to terms on the border, or what's called the boundary line dispute. What came about this? There's a famous line that still is that still is in existence today that separates north and south, the Mason-Dixon line. And is it safe to say that a majority of English colonists who came to Maryland were indentured servants? Yes, that is uh, very true. You know, it seems like indentured servants have made a um, They've made a name for themselves. In other words, many of them are coming over to the New World, not just so much to start a new life, but to um, pay off their, um, what do you call it, years of um, being assigned to work for someone else. And then after that time has expired, they become um, freed people. Well, um, how many signers from Maryland signed the Declaration of Independence. I will give you a hint. The number is between three and five. The answer is four. Who were these four men? Charles Carroll, Samuel Chase, William Packer, Thomas Stone. Which of the signers will we be discussing? I read all of them. And they all had very good um, credentials. But if I had to pick two that were by far the most interesting to discuss, they were none other than William Packer 
and Charles Carroll. We'll start with William Packa. He was born around 1740. He came from a wealthy, he, or should I say he came from wealthy Maryland planters. Well, that should tell you right there that he probably comes from a well-to-do family that um, produces tobacco. Well, Mr. Packa, um, given that he comes from a well-to-do family, it's safe to say that his family can afford to uh, send him anywhere he wants to get a top-quality education. Well, he studies in Philadelphia, but then he goes as far away as London, England. And now remember this. If anybody wanted to go study in England, and if your family had the money to send you overseas, they would do that. And in many instances, you were uh, sent over to England to learn how to not just become a fine gentleman, but to um, learn um, a lot of um, key essentials to uh, whether it had to do with studying law, uh, business. and not, In other words, going to, studying in England was not just a um, leisure retreat studying abroad program. It was serious business. Mr. Packa practiced law in Annapolis, where he ended up meeting two future Maryland signers of the Declaration of, of Independence, being Samuel Chase and Thomas Stone. And it turns out that all three men were either studying law or clerking at Annapolis firms. Okay, and uh, what is the capital of Maryland people? Not Baltimore, but Annapolis. Annapolis was named after Queen Anne. And there is a county in Maryland known as Anne Arundel, named after uh, Queen Anne, who was um, Queen of England even into the early 18th century. And it turns out that she was Queen of England when uh, some of our first forefathers were born, most notably like Ben Franklin. Well, William Packa becomes very dear friends with Samuel Chase, and it turns out that they were inseparable, meaning that no matter where the two of them were, they always seemed to be together. And of course, by being together, you're going to team up with one another. What kind of things did they team up together on? Uh, they challenged, um, for example, they uh, questioned the government practice of collecting taxes that benefited a single religion. Now, here is where church and state can lie in um, conflict. Okay, um, and this is also safe to say that there's um, no uh, neutrality here. In other words, the state is uh, collecting taxes to benefit one single religion over everyone else. Well, shouldn't taxes be used to benefit everyone? Absolutely. But if it's only benefiting a single religion, then it is safe to say that it's not just so much discriminatory, but it's a violation of what Thomas Jefferson would call church and state. So Mr. Packa and Mr. Chase ended up uh, representing a political friend who had refused to pay the tax. They were smart enough to take on this case because, in the end, the jury sided with their client. And in return, um, Mr. Packa and Mr. Chase were hailed as heroes. 
Mr. Packer was elected to the first and second Continental Congresses, where he served until 1779. What kind of uh, lasting contributions did Mr. Packer um, partake in? Well, they were all at the state level. He spent a great deal of family money supplying Maryland's troops to helping the Annapolis Convention create a new state constitution. That is, a new state constitution for Maryland. He served as a state senator, served as chief justice to becoming the state's third governor. He worked to assist veterans and helped draw up a list of amendments which served as the foundation for our Bill of Rights. So how about that? Mr. Packer was one step ahead but yet James Madison probably found his list of amendments worthy enough to be factored into the Bill of Rights or what we call those first ten amendments that are in existence today. Well, you know, William Packer was probably in the same boat as other signers during this time because all of our signers had to have known someone who lost their life, not just leading up to the Declaration of Independence, but during uh, war. Mr. Packer did lose many loved ones, and it was said that he was very lonely towards the end of his life. His first wife died ten years after they were first married. He lost two out of three children. It's bad enough you lose one child, but to lose two out of three children is very hard. Losing a child back then was very um, difficult, and it still is today. But when you consider in the 18th century that life expectancy was not very high, so any time a child made it past the age of 10, that was something to have been very thankful for, knowing that there was still um, hope. Now, does Miss, what does Mr. Packer do? Um, well, he does remarry, and unfortunately, his second wife died only three years into their marriage. And they did have a child, and that child died as well. Well, for all the sorrows that Mr. Packer went through, he did have a child out of wedlock um, with a free African-American woman. He died at age 58 in 1799, but he is referred to as the signer who dared to acknowledge his illegitimate child. I guess it's safe to say that this is another example of um, hiding a skeleton in your closet. And yes, nobody's perfect, but sometimes we never know just how big the skeletons are that lie in people's closets. Now, our second signer from Maryland who we're going to be talking about is, is um, extremely important. Not that Mr. Packo did not have any significance, but I find Charles Carroll to be of extraordinary significance. And we're going to find out why. For starters, though, he was born in 1737 in Annapolis. That's Ironically, 1737 was the same year John Hancock of Massachusetts was born. 
Mr. Carroll is the child of a wealthy tobacco planter. Okay? If you're wealthy, it should automatically be assumed that you could do whatever it is that you want to do in terms of going to find schools, uh, whether at home or abroad. You should be allowed to have every known connection possible, whether it's in law, politics, uh, the port um, industry. Well, it turns out that Mr. Carroll had a huge setback. He was Catholic. And um, I think it's safe to say that very, very few people know of someone who is a Catholic. And the Catholic um, population in Maryland, as, as mentioned earlier, is about 10% or less. 10% may seem high, but when you consider just how, how much of colonial America is Protestant, that ought to tell you something right there. And remember this too, people, that um, one of the reasons why Protestants um, were very leery of Catholics it was because of how Catholics had persecuted Protestants for not adhering to the Catholic Church. Remember, too, that the Catholic Church controlled huge amounts of land, and because of that, their status was even made bigger. Church, land, and not just so much land itself, but the natural resources that lie below the surface of the land, all of that... Um, says a lot. Now, religious intolerance pretty much almost um, prevented uh, Mr. Carroll from practicing law to serving in public office. So, uh, remember people that Catholics could not vote, they could not hold any kind of public office, teach or practice law, pretty much all in the name of religion. That's um, that's how... Um, how do, you, how do I say it, how backwards we are by this point, even into um, 1740s or 1750s, we still um, are very leery about the Catholics. So how does Charles Carroll make up for um, these, uh, what you call, um, hurdles? He attends an unknown school with Jesuit instructors before his family sent him to Catholic-friendly France. He even managed to study law in England. He got a 17-year Jesuit education, and he even spoke five languages. So obviously his education did mean something. And it turns out that he married a cousin of his, being Mary Darnell, or Mary Darnell, now, remember, people, in the 18th century, if you were well-to-do, it was never considered an issue to marry your cousin. And many well-to-do families married from within. And a lot of it obviously had to do with money and land. How much um, did Mr. Uh, Carroll own in terms of acreage? About 10,000 acres. That's a lot of land. Not just land, but money. Well, besides being um, a successful landowner, what is something else Mr. Carroll is successful at? Well, it's more than just one thing, but for starters, he is a successful writer. 
He wrote under a pen name of First Citizen in opposition to the Stamp Act. And once people found out who First Citizen was, being none other than Charles Carroll, his fame recognition soared. Well, Mr. Carroll supported non-importation agreements, that is, boycotts of British goods coming into um, America. He attended the colony's first um, convention, um, first revolutionary convention to being on Committee of Correspondence and Safety. Now, remember this too, or should I say note this. Did Char- was Charles Carroll allowed to sign the Declaration of Independence? Yes, he was. He became the sole Catholic signer to sign this document. He owned multiple agricultural estates, and he was seen as the wealthiest man in all 13 colonies. They know at the time of his um, living, or should I say most notably, maybe around the 18th century, he may have been worth as much as two two million one hundred thousand pounds of sterling, which was equivalent to two hundred sixty nine million eight hundred eighty four thousand four hundred seventy eight um, dollars in pound sign in twenty nineteen, and I do believe that if that was converted into um, American money, it might be somewhere between 100 and 300 billion dollars. So it might be safe to say if Mr. Carroll were alive today, he would be a true billionaire. Why else is uh, Charles Carroll significant? Given that he was the um, first signer, not just to sign the Declaration of Independence. He, he wasn't the first signer, but given that he was the first um, signer of Roman Catholic faith to sign the document, it turns out that he had a cousin named John Carroll, who became the first Catholic bishop of the United States. And there is a college in Ohio named um, John Carroll College. It has, it's named after John Carroll, Charles Carroll's cousin, and that is a Catholic institution outside, somewhere outside of Cleveland. So there you have it. Um, John Carroll, Charles Carroll, the Carroll family is really establishing a name for itself. Charles Carroll was very instrumental in getting Maryland to change its position on voting for independence from England. It's a good thing that Charles Carroll was able to sign, um, because if he hadn't, I don't believe Maryland would have gone along. And it is safe to say that there probably were a fair number of Marylanders who were in favor of, of keeping their allegiance with the crown. Here's another first for Charles Carroll. He signed the Declaration of Independence for another Carroll family member who wasn't even there. But there is a reason why. It turns out that this other family member has the same name, Charles Carroll. However, he was from Carrollton, whereas Charles Carroll, who signed the Declaration of Independence, was from Annapolis. 
he basically uh, signed this other uh, family member's name being the same of Charles Carroll to help avoid any kind of confusion among who signed. In other words, who really was the real signer of the two may have saved his cousin's life, for all we know. Mr. Carroll uh, served in the Maryland State Senate. He drafted the state constitution, served on the board of war, served on a committee which visited George Washington at Valley Forge um, during that um, brutal winter of 1777, or should I say rather 1778. Mr. Carroll uh, may have um, been the one that could have um, ultimately saved George Washington. He broke that that famous Conway cabal matter. Um, I had mentioned it earlier with um, signers of uh, Francis Lewis and Benjamin Rush. If any of you have forgotten what the Conway cabal matter was, it basically was an incident where... Um, Patriot leaders, along with um, people in Congress, wanted George Washington out as commander of the uh, Continental Army. Mr. Carroll came to um, George Washington's defense and basically was able to save him in time to where he was not um, so much harmed, but just forced out without being allowed to have a say. What does that tell you right there about Mr. Carroll? Regardless of his religious faith, he's not afraid to put his life on the line to protect someone as prominent as George Washington was, who not only was commander of the Continental Army, but would go on to become the father of our country. But it might be safe to say that even during the American Revolution that uh, George Washington already kind of was seen in a way as the father of our country. While Charles Carroll himself wasn't involved in the Constitutional Convention, but the First Amendment being freedom of religion, it, it is safe to say, and historians know this, that the First Amendment being freedom of religion was geared towards Mr. Carroll as he was the only non-Protestant signer to sign the document, that document being none other than the Declaration of Independence. From 1789 to 1792, he served as one of Maryland's first two U.S. Senators. In later years, he, his list of accomplishments are just phenomenal. In later years, he invested in canal systems to owning land in Pennsylvania and New York. It might be safe to say that some of his land holdings, most notably in New York, could have been linked to um, surroundings um, that... Um, included um, Erie Canal uh, territory. He served on the first board of directors of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, and he was there to lay its cornerstone in a ceremony at age 91, which would have been between 1828 and 1829. So think about it. The first railroad in America, Charles Carroll is alive to see this and was on the board of directors. And he took up horseback riding and was riding horses up until his 90s. It's interesting, another one of our signers, 
none other than Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence. He was riding horses up until his death. And it's just, uh, I find it remarkable what what a fair number of our forefathers were able to do up until their time ended. Well, Mr. Carroll died in 1832 at age 95. He was the last signer, or should I say the last of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776 to pass away. And what do you know? He died six years after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams who each passed away on July 4th, 1826, the 50th birthday celebration of our Declaration of Independence. He just wasn't the last, he was not the last signer to die. But when you think about it, people, he was the only one of non-Protestant faith that was still left living in 1832 at the time of his death. It's safe to say that he left, he didn't leave just a legacy, he left a phenomenal legacy. His inclusion in signing the Declaration of Independence may have been the first steps that enabled us to indoctrinate freedom of religion, not just as a part of our Bill of Rights, but as Thomas Jefferson of Virginia had preached in his um, Statutes for Religious Freedom in Virginia. If it weren't for Charles Carroll, um, who knows if we would have been able to have been um, as openly welcome in 1776. And uh, as the authors have said in the book, Signing Their Lives Away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, if John Adams had known that Charles Carroll was still living, he should have uh, said the following... Charles Carroll survives, and remember this, if, if any of you didn't know this now, Thomas Jefferson died on the morning of July the 4th, and his last words apparently were to one of his servants, is it the 4th? In other words, did I live to see July 4th in our 50th um, celebration? He had, Jefferson had no idea that John Adams was dying But later that afternoon, John Adams, his last words were known to be, Thomas Jefferson survives. It's just a shame that he had forgotten about Charles Carroll. Because he probably could have said that Thomas Jefferson and Charles Carroll survive. And it is hard to believe that um, that there were three signers left on up until 1826, but knowing that two of them died, and here Charles Carroll, who was not on the, um, he was not on the Committee of Five, but yet all of his accomplishments were, um, were what do you call, um, colossal. So, in my estimation, not only do Thomas Jefferson and John Adams survive, Charles Carroll survives. He survives because he set the bar for um, religious diversity, being the first Roman Catholic to sign our document, but also to have been the last to have died of non-Protestant faith. 
Well, people, uh, it has been a great podcast session tonight. And remember this. We have talked about nine colonies. All nine have produced some very unique people. And all nine colonies have left some form of legacy, not just for in 1776, but even in today's time. But remember this. In 1776, there was one man out of 56 who signed and was not of Protestant faith, but yet he still holds a place in the annals of uh, history, none other than Mr. Charles Carroll. And uh, as I had mentioned earlier from a previous podcast, if one were to ask me, uh, who would you, if, if you could meet any two signers, or just any two forefathers in general, which two would they be? Well, it's a very easy choice, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. But if I had to pick another two as alternates, which two would they be? They would be Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania and Charles Carroll of Maryland. I actually would find it very interesting to, to, to uh, meet someone at, of this time who was of Catholic faith. And remember this too, Protestants and Catholics, while yes, they may have been at each other's throats for all the wrong reasons when it came to religious persecutions, religious exiles, Protestants and Catholics did have some things alike. They both did endure religious persecutions. We tend to assume that the Catholics were the ones that did it to the Protestants, but the Protestants were probably just as guilty of doing it to Catholics. However, it is great to know that um, for a brief period in time that, that our signers could set aside their religious differences and come together as one to sign this uh, unique document that helped alter the course not just for independence from England, but where we stand, um, for where we've stood over the years. I look forward to another podcast uh, episode, and uh, while we're nine down, we've got four more to go, but we have covered a lot of ground. And remember this too, nine out of 13, nine is a magic number. Why? Because you need nine colonies to ratify a document like the Declaration of Independence, or even the U.S. Constitution for that matter. So think about that. Nine is a very important number. Take care and good night.